You are listening to Transgender Warriors on Joy 94.9. We're a show about trans history and culture. We'd like to start this episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. You're with Sam Elkin and Gemma Caffarella. And tonight we are joined in our very first episode for 2020 by Professor Noah Reisman from the Australian Catholic University and Geraldine Feller from Monash University. And we are going to talk to Noah and Geraldine about their transgender history project This is part one of a two-part interview with Noah and Geraldine. We're going to talk about their deep and very broad dive for the history of transgender identity in Australia. And later in the show, we will also speak to Jacob Thomas, who is the director of the play Adam, which is currently on as part of Midsummer. So please stay tuned. You are listening to Transgender Warriors on Joy 94.9. This is Newtown Chips by Moonchild Sunili. Everything will be out here. 
Welcome to Transgender Warriors. It is a special show tonight. We are interviewing two people where we normally just have one guest. We are lucky enough to be joined by Professor Noah Reisman and Geraldine Feller, who are both academics who are specialising in trans history work. Noah is from the Australian Catholic University and Geraldine is from Monash University. So welcome and thanks so much for being on. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Noah and Geraldine, you're both running a project which you've given me the name of and I'm going to read it out word for word. Um, (laughs) It's Transgender Australians, the history of an identity so that our listeners can follow you and, and look it up and see what's going on. So as I understand it, you're working together across different institutions. And so what are you doing? What's it involve? <laughs> well, so this project grew out of some of the previous work that I used to do in LGBTI history, where I've done other work on the history of LGBTI people in the Australian Defence Force. And obviously the T is a very important part of that, trans people. And in that project, I interviewed about a dozen, give or take, trans members, past and present. And one thing that became really clear out of hearing their life stories and their stories in the Defence Force is you can't understand the history of people in one institution like the Defence Force without knowing the much broader context, the, the social, the legal, the medical, the media, all of this stuff. And from that, realized we don't have a proper history of trans people in Australia. And so this project grew essentially out of that and been doing it for about two and a half years now, give or take, two and a bit, been working on it. So I have a broader question, which is why? Whose idea was it to kind of do this? Was it was it your idea and then you had to go and get funding? Or, <laughs> um, you know, and how did it come to play that it was across different institutions? Good question. So I, I just described the inspiration for it. Um, very early on, I talked to, so I'm a cisgender gay man. And early on, I talked to a few transgender friends and floated it with them. And they said, yes, absolutely. We need We need this history. And I then spoke to a few other trans community members. One thing that was really important was knowing this needs to be a trans-centric project, needs to very much center their voices, their perspectives. So also assembled an advisory group where I have at least one trans person from each state and territory on this advisory group and did apply for and was very luckily successful at getting Australian Research Council funding. And I knew Geraldine from Geraldine's fabulous thesis work on HIV AIDS history and was very pleased that Geraldine was interested in helping out working on this project and Geraldine's been amazing. (laughs) I've had the really amazing task of just sitting in the Gay and Lesbian archives and going through reams of amazing material about trans lives in Australia from the 50s onwards so it's been kind of like a pretty incredible opportunity I guess. No, I have a question that you've probably been asked a million times, but you're from the Australian Catholic University and obviously the Catholic Church hasn't necessarily taken a particularly enlightened approach to gender and gender fluidity. I think Pope Francis came out and has said that um, the church rejects the notion that gender is fluid and that you can choose your gender and that it's a threat to the traditional family and family values. I'm interested to see that quite a unique piece of work is coming out of the Australian Catholic University. So what's it been like doing that work there? I have to give credit where credit's due. It's been a complete non-issue and I've gotten total support. ACU, it is a public university. So it does straddle this very interesting line of being both a public university and a Catholic university. But as a public university, they don't discriminate. They take academic freedom very seriously. And this was a project I designed and I've never been questioned about it. And to give the university credit, 
they've supported it. Before I had the Australian Research Council funding, I had some pilot funding from the university for it. And also the vice chancellor, to his credit, has even gone out of his way. He, he actually has said in some meetings he thinks it's really important that a Catholic university of all places is supporting LGBTI research. So uh, the mission of the university very much does talk about upholding the dignity of all human persons, and this is one way that they really are living that, is by supporting this project. Mm. I'm thinking about what you do when you start a project like this. Obviously, researching a group of people and their identity is a pretty big task. So where do you start? At what point in time do you start? How do you narrow it down? And, and how are you approaching this? When we designed the project, we decided just, in, in some ways it might seem a bit artificial, but we decided that the starting point would be 1910. The reason being 1910 is when Magnus Hirschfeld published the book Transvestites. And look, I could be putting quotes around a lot of the things I'm saying yeah. today. So just a warning, I'm putting quotes around a lot of things I'm saying today. <laughs> but that was the sort of the first publication that, that started to... to in the modern world, let's say, modern Western world, separate out gender identity from sexuality. And in 1911, a small newspaper report in Australia mentioned this term, transvestite. So just decided that's the first time that word appears in Australian print. We'll use that as the starting point and taking it through to the present, how these different ideas of gender nonconformity, which over time become to be identified as transgender or trans and gender diverse, tracing that. It's a mix of looking at old archival records where they exist, court records, newspapers are huge, and that's where Geraldine's been absolutely amazing. And especially for living memory, oral histories, of course, um, with a mixture of activists, past and present. And also, I use the word loosely, but ordinary people just, you know, don't necessarily want to get the experiences of people who weren't activists as well to date have done about 50 oral history interviews but that's ongoing not done so if anyone's listening who wants to be interviewed shoot us an email (laughs) (laughs) and so Geraldine what have you been focusing on when you've been at the archives have you also just been looking at anything from 1910 more or less so the archives has a huge massive collection of the gay press basically or the queer press from the kind of 60s 70s onwards so I've spent some time going through that and looking for mentions of trans or different iterations of, of you know trans identity but the most interesting collection um, that they have there is this incredible box and it's just it's one box um, but it's a really big dense box and it's from this guy uh, in South Australia I think who he just collected newspapers and from all over the country and any mention of anything gender diverse he just cut it out and put it in a folder. Wow. Yeah, interesting guy. Was he like an archivist or involved he, in a he, library? He or? was, yeah. yeah. He was involved in a library. So he actually, it wasn't just trans stuff that he was interested in. He had a storage container full of different kind of fascinations of his. And yeah, gender diversity was one of them. So can I ask what his other fascinations were? Look, he had one collection that was just any photo of women in leather oh okay yep make of that what you will um (laughs) also just kind of sexual diversity and things like that in general as well so interesting because Gemma and I do a lot of tenancy work and in tenancy law there's often um quite a bit of intersection with hoarders Mm -hmm. and like Mm -hmm. dealing with people's 
courting tendencies can be some of the most difficult advocacy for tenancy lawyers. Yeah, then the intersection between history and hoarding, like what, what is that? How do we stop tenancy lawyers like us getting hoarders to remove all of their interesting history archives? Like, what do I, you do? I'm actually, it's funny you mention that, and it's probably another discussion for another day, but this is an interest of mine. I have a project idea in the works that I think we can use digital technology to our advantage to create some really interesting stuff. Yeah, cool. We cool. can continue this discussion later yeah. if you would like, Sam. Okay, yeah, because I really, I worry about us losing history. I really do. Oh, and, and facilitating the loss of history to comply with, you know, like Department of Housing requirements, all these really quirky people collecting really interesting stuff and just... just putting it all in the skip. Well, the, the box that Geraldine just described, it's not unique to that person. I mean, I know you had Julie Peters on as one yeah, of your yeah, people yeah. in one of your early episodes. Julie has saved every, similar to the, this gentleman saved, everything from her life and every time she came across news clippings or magazines or anything about trans or gender she saved all of them too she's a more organized hoarder though they're organized into these great filing cabinets and she was generous enough to let me access them and there was this other collector up in brisbane who from about the 1960s on Anytime he came across news clippings about gender diversity, trans, drag, anything, he cut them out and he pasted them into notebooks, 40 notebooks. And until recently, they were all at the Queensland AIDS Council. But the, we managed to get in touch with him and he has since donated them to ALGA and now ALGA has all of those as well. Cool. So there's actually something in this as well about mm. people saving and... and these might be extreme examples. I say extreme in a positive way. But one thing that has come across in a lot of the interviews, oral history interviews I've done with some of the older trans people, is they often do talk about, especially from the 70s or the, the 80s, if they, like, they, they will remember a particular newspaper article or a particular TV show or a magazine. Cleo came up in a few interviews because Cleo was actually quite progressive, actually, on trans issues, was one of the first. And what they say is, it was when they realized there were others like them and mm. well, that they weren't alone. I mean, we didn't, didn't have the internet then. So it's interesting. Like the, a lot of people have saved this stuff mm. because it meant something to them. Yeah. This guy's story, I don't know why, but there's probably one there. Unusual guy. Yeah. But I'm very grateful to him. Is he still alive? Do no, he's not. Oh, that's a shame. He's still alive. Yeah. It's interesting that, of course, I know that Elga is going through a process of looking at a name change and so it's not necessarily the case that um, now the notion that just lesbian and gay stuff is their thing, but mm. I am interested in knowing how extensive their archive is given that I suppose acceptance of trans and gender diverse issues as a kind of broader queer, you know, mm. in the big queer tent is something that maybe is a little bit more modern and you know do they have an extensive collection or are they relying on these kind of sources that are sending them in now mm. look i think their collection is pretty impressive i guess the politics of a lot of the people who are involved in alga from the very beginning like they were pretty radical mm. and you know trans people have always been a part of the most radical sections of gay liberation or queer liberation so my experience of the archive is that yeah it's it's very diverse and has a, an excellent collection in that sense obviously you know, there's not an equal proportion of trans content as there is to gay and lesbian content. And that's kind of a reflection of the marginalisation of trans people in general. But what they have is really good. And there, Nick Henderson just does the most incredible job of building that collection and just can't speak highly enough, really, of his work. So it's very good. You're listening to Transgender Warriors on Joy 94.9. And we're going to go to a track now. We're going to go to Sia, taken for granted now. And Sam, it's not a reflection of my position on this show, is it? Absolutely not.
Welcome back to Transgender Warriors on Joy 94.9. We're talking with Professor Noah Reisman and Geraldine Feller who are talking to us about their trans history project. You both have talked about, you know, this kind of notion that we are looking back on a time when different words were being used and, and that's why you picked the kind of 1910 point. 
I'm curious in knowing how that works into your um, your processes. Uh, you're looking at something that now we have very specific terms for and, and language is so important in this stuff, right? Mm. Um, but we're looking back at times when that language wasn't so developed or nuanced. So what have you? What kind of work have you been doing about that? What, how does that impact what you're doing? Well, now that I get all boring and academic on you. So yeah, this is something that trans historians have been grappling with because the term transgender itself wasn't coined until the 60s. And when it was coined, it was originally used as the sort of, you had transsexual, which itself was not coined till the 50s, but that was referring to women who had gender affirmation surgery. And it was at that time, they were always talking about trans women. And then you had transvestite, which referred to men who liked to dress from time to time, but didn't want to permanently adopt um, a female gender. So this term transgender was coined to describe, if you will, the people in the middle who didn't want surgery, but did want to identify permanently. And you know, so you've got these three terms, then these terms evolve over time. And it's it's in the 1990s, and especially after Leslie Feinberg's publication, Transgender Liberation, that you see transgender taking on that sort of broader umbrella term that it is now. And I think we're also even in a state of flux now. I mean, we, we're shifting from transgender to trans and gender diverse, like, you mm -hmm. know, language is changing now. Um, so, so that's, that's the, the boring context of so these terms didn't exist before the Second World War. Transvestite did, sorry. The, other, the others didn't exist. So a lot of historians have been looking at this and they're saying, so, okay, we know gender diversity has existed in every culture for, you know, time immemorial. But can you really call someone transgender if that term didn't exist? And did they necessarily see themselves as transgender as the way we understand it? So when looking at earlier examples, um, especially sort of pre-World War II, it's very much about looking to examples of people who were... Um, let's say, crossing the gender norms of the time, um, being very careful never to necessarily label them as trans because we just can't. And short of them coming out and saying, I am trans, which they can't, mm. it's just you can't do that. But it is very much about imagining the possibility of trans. And there's this new scholarship emerging on a term they call transhistoricity, which is about this sort of looking at the sort of lineage of ways people have challenged gender and, and understandings of gender that has sort of led up to what we now call transgender. So that, that's the sort of long-winded academic way of explaining how, like how we can do word. it. I that word. Transhistoricity. I didn't invent it. That's hard to say. I didn't invent it. Because Sam was reading something to me the other day and querying whether or not it sounded like it was a description of a gender-diverse person from a book that was written oh, a long time right. ago. Yeah, what was that book? Christ, Christ stopped, stopped it in Eboli. Yeah, usually. it's a book written by somebody, Levy. I can't remember what his first name is. We read it when I was in Sicily. So he's a Italian prisoner of war and who's a doctor and he's describing meeting this person who is the grave digger and he's describing them as somebody who is like hairless in the face and has a male identity in the community and has never had sexual relations with any females and lives a very like aesthetic life and they're talking about how they used to be in this gang where there was this like cross-dressing woman who was involved in like bank robberies and stuff like that and I was like googling it being like oh my god there's like a early like trans representation in this book why has nobody ever talked about it and mm. it doesn't seem to be discussed when at all when was this published it was written in 45 right. when published. Maybe that's there why no one's yeah. talked about it how, yeah how I know somebody <laughs> needs to write their PhD about this but you know topic, like the based, based on the limited info you've given me like the way I would think about it you could write about this being a trans possibility 
Mm. But one thing, and this is a very new space, I think, for a lot of historians, not just in trans, but in a lot of fields of like being able to not be definitive, but being very open about not being definitive. Mm. So being very open about this is a possibility, this is why, and you, you know, but being very cautious to say, but we don't know. Yeah, fascinating. Mm. Geraldine, I'm curious about how this has played out with what you've been reading mm. at the archives. So, you know, what kind of things are you seeing with these blurred lines about possibilities? Yeah, absolutely. What I've noticed is, particularly in stories about and told by trans women, uh, or people that we would now perhaps think of as trans women, often self-identify as transsexual. That's very common. And, you know, very strong, like the narratives are very strongly around, like, the kind of trans narratives that we're familiar with now. I was born in the wrong body. I need surgery to, you know, to affirm my identity. So that's that's very common and in some ways a bit easier to read, I think. Whereas for trans men, it's often more complex. So I'm thinking of one story in particular, person in the 50s. The title of the, um, the story, and it's a first-person account, the title of it is My 30 Years as a Man by a Woman. Mm-hmm. And this person whose name's John has lived 30 years and continued to live as as a man, but was assigned female at birth. So their story is very complicated, I think, in terms of what Noah was talking about, because this person identifies with living as a man and has lived as a man, but there's not the same narrative of that is more around the people who are identifying as transsexual, of being born in the wrong body or um, surgery or all of those things that were emerging in the 50s. That wasn't this the way this person described themselves so it is a little bit a bit harder to read because when you read a lot of those histories of proto-trans male type Mm. people it seems like the narrative that is imposed on them is that either the person was a lesbian who wanted to marry a woman and wanted Mm. to be recognized in the communities in that relationship or that they wanted to become a sailor and go to sea or something like that to have economic freedom and you know freedom of movement which is kind of interesting that that gets imposed, that narrative, and it's really hard to know because mm. that, that might be the reason, it might not be, it mm. might be complicated mm. and seems like there's very, very little written history, particularly of, yeah, I guess what we would call non-binary trans mask. I don't know what Absolutely. we would call um, people like this now. Yeah, and that's certainly the case for this person. John talks about essentially the impetus being the Great Depression, so they couldn't find work as a woman so you know it's an incredible article actually um describes like putting on men's clothes and being able to work as a pea picker and suddenly like all these employment opportunities open up for john and that's how they live their lives they also have two children in that time Mm -hmm. um and you know it's actually a very sad story they can't keep their children um you know because of because of their gender identity yeah it's a really complicated thing but there's also real hints that you get in there of John's attachment to masculinity and, you know, a masculine self-presentation and and identity, which is more than just, I think, responding to the labour market. So Mm. it is complicated. Mm. Well, it's going to be so interesting to read all that stuff because, you know, like I've really been actively searching out this, I guess, more trans mask history. Mm. um, 
and the stuff that is available tends to, you know, either be like North American, like because of like Lou Sullivan and all that amazing work there and like a little bit of stuff from the UK. But other than the only person that I can think of is Eugene Fellini, Harry Crawford. And you only know about that because of the terrible murder that takes place and then the criminal history that I can't think of any other Edward story. Evans DeLacy? No, I don't know it. So, yeah. oh God, I might be getting the name wrong, but I think it was Edward Evans DeLacy was one from the mid to late 1800s, mm-hmm. 1860s. I'm getting the decade wrong because I'm not focusing on Edward. But Edward's story was had migrated to Australia from Ireland at that time presenting as female. And then that female sort of disappeared from the records. Mm-hmm. And then this Edward Evans DeLacy person appears and he lived in Bendigo, married a few times, had children, was even listed on the birth certificates as the father. And how Edward got discovered, it was about at least 10, possibly 20 years later, was he was presented at police station of the asylum. I think it was the asylum in Bendigo. They stripped Edward down and biologically was female. And Edward's story is quite tragic because Edward was like sent to the asylum and was at the Q asylum and was sort of like forced to then become their original female identity. Mm. And then like as that female actually appeared in some of the sort of... um, sort of like traveling freak show type stuff as the male impersonator had to live the rest of their life in that female identity and then died sort of poor in the Melbourne asylum. Again, similar to this case, but even earlier, we can imagine trans, we can really imagine trans possibilities, Mm. but you know, you can't put a label definitively on them, but Mm. that's one of the more, that one's from the mid to late 1800s, one of the, the more high profile ones. There was another one, the name of which escapes me, and there's someone working on a film on them from the person from the 1970s. A lot of butch lesbians claim this person as well. I, f- I don't know if you've come across them. I forget the name. I can get back to you. I can get back to you, but in terms of like the project, the sort of earliest openly trans men, I guess you'd say that I've interviewed were really sort of in the 1980s mm-hmm. that, that I've come, that I've interviewed or for sort of were coming of age in the 1980s and began identifying in the 1980s. Again, I'm sure there were people before that. But also, there was a book published out of the United States, and a lot of the work that was published then was all medicalized, which we know is very problematic, but that was the model seen then. And it was a medical book about trans men, and that was sort of like the first time, I think, this this book was published in 83. I might be going out on a limb here, but I think that's the first time trans men were even like sort of, for lack of a better word, officially recognized as a thing by this book. And one of these activists I interviewed, he somehow came across that book, and he gave it to his GP, and his GP was actually a very early adopter of what we would now call informed consent model. And I was like, all right, let's give you some hormones. Yep. Like, <laughs> so he told his GP, he's like, okay, let's do it. And you've been listening to our interview with Professor Noah Reitman and Geraldine Feller. And we will bring you the second half of that interview next week.